Hello, and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. Welcome to our first official episode of season six. Um, still using the old intro music. I haven't quite decided on a new intro tune, and it always feels like a lot of pressure since that's what I'm going to name the best of album for that year, I think. Unless I just get rid of that uh, caveat. I am not 100% sure on that yet. Uh, anyway, this episode is, uh, in a way, the perfect episode to start out season six for me. Uh, Keith Sanger has been writing about bagpipe history for decades and all of his kind of collection of uh, information on the harp and bagpipes has really helped me kind of think about this stuff and also Keith's always been very giving with his resources to kind of direct me towards things to check out so along that lines there's not a lot of tunes on this episode it's mostly a two-hour long conversation with Keith and I as we kind of meander and talk about his time in researching bagpipe history kind of some persistent myths that refuse to die um, even despite some excellent evidence that that Keith provides to the contrary uh, and talk a little bit about kind of lowland pipes and uh, highland pipes and cost of pipes and that sort of thing. So lots of information in here. I do play two tunes, though, and these are based on a collection of music that, fittingly, I didn't really know about or wasn't on my radar until Keith talked about it in the uh, interview here. So these are two tunes from a um, book called Collection of Strathspey or Old Highland Reels by Angus Cumming at Grantown in uh, at Granton and Strathspey. This is from Edinburgh in 1780, and there's some interesting kind of piping connections and Jacobite connections to this collection of tunes. So it seemed like a good way to do that. Um, it's already going to be a long episode, so I'm not going to talk too much here, other than um, tell you what those tunes are, I suppose, since they're going to just show up. So we're going to start with uh, and Dilly's reel or Arndilly's reel, sorry, Arndilly's reel. And then when uh, Keith and I are finished talking, I'll kind of cut in with uh, Sir Harry Innes's reel. Anyway, let's go to some tunes and nice chat. <laughs> tempted to start with a glass of uh, malt whiskey beside me, but I thought it would just be cruel at your end watching me drink it. <laughs> it's all right. It's, it's coffee time for me, which is as addictive and, and challenging a substance, I suppose. But... Uh, well, thank you for you doing this. Uh, oh, I don't know. Um, let me get the, we'll take the first up. question. The, uh, well, the fire you sent me, the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, I mean... If you want to just go down, I've kind of been assuming that you'd wind up going off on tangents, and I would be happy with that. And um, 
but yeah, and then if we ever just wind up with a lull, I might ask one of these questions. Is sort of my hope. Well, to go off on a tangent, you have to start somewhere. So we'll just start with the first question. <laughs> yeah. Um, bagpipe myths. Well, <laughs> um, there are bucketfuls, but the one that is proving hardest to kill, no matter how much people try, is the claim that bagpipes were banned following Cologne. It is a total nonsense, as one can easily demonstrate. Um, in fact, John Gibson went to great lengths in one of his books to publish the entire act of prescription to prove that there was no mention of bagpipes in it. But that never solved the problem. Uh, looking at the, well, looking at Culloden um, and the 45 in general, of the major piping families, all of them were actually on the government side. Right. I mean, it may well have been down to the chief who calls the tune, but uh, the McCrimmons, the MacArthur's, and down in Mull, uh, the practicing Rankin at the time. Um, he, John Rankin, was actually piper to one of the companies of the Argyllshire militia under Campbell control. <laughs> sure. So when one looks at the Jacobite side, an enormous number of the pipers we know to have been involved on the Jacobite side, in actual fact, were lowlanders. Which, of course, brings us to the, the, the nux of the problem with the claim that bagpipes were banned following Culloden. That all revolves around a court case involving um, some prisoners who were taken. Uh, they were part of the garrison left behind at Carlisle as the Jacobite army moved back northwards. They were captured at Carlisle and taken down to York in England for trial. And the first point, of course, is that they were being tried under English law, not Scots law. So sure. anything that uh, created a precedent in English law would not have had any effect whatever in Scots law. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the piper on whom everything is based was a, a James Reed. And he was being charged with treason, as were all the people who'd been on the Jacobite side. And he tried to be too clever and claimed to the judge that he, in fact, was just a musician tagging along. He wasn't part and parcel of a rebellion. Sure. Right. Despite that, the, the assize, which is what they called juries in those days, um, recommended clemency. But the judge, um, you know the term barrack room lawyer? No, I guess not. Right, it's um, sort of military slang over here. Um, it's a soldier in the barrack room who knows the regulations oh. and tries to quote them to uh, a, a sergeant or a corporal or an officer and finds sure. that there are yeah. regulations and there are. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, it's the whole, uh, the ship is sinking, we can have all the rum we want guy. It's, yeah. it's that, yeah. yeah. Well, the judge was not impressed and despite the recommendation for clemency, the judge made the oft-reported remark that no Highland regiment marched without a piper, and therefore he was very certainly part and parcel of the regiment, and went ahead and sentenced him to death. Yeah. But of course, the actual charge and what he was sentenced for was treason, it was not for being a piper, right. um, but for being part and parcel of a regiment. But that, of course, leads into where the whole claim becomes rather amusing, because Apart from the fact that James Reed was a lowlander, he was actually in a lowland Jacobite regiment, Ogilvy's, and um, he was likely playing the bellows blown lowland bagpipe, the large bellows blown lowland bagpipe that were used by the Borough Pipers at that time. 
So it wasn't even a Highland piper playing Highland pipes. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I guess the, the, the myth always descends from there, or maybe you're going to talk about this, but the, the argument then is that bagpipes are a weapon of war. So that's the workaround that, that bagpipes aren't in the per, acts of prescription. It's that they're weapons of war or some nonsense, right? That's well, the, the, that never really came up. But the, 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 the further background, which makes the whole thing ridiculous, the whole claim ridiculous, was that there were, I think, about three or four pipers altogether who were tried through that same court in front of the same judge and the same size or jury. Yeah. Um, and... None of them were sentenced, uh, well, other than James Reed, who tried to be clever, none of the others were sentenced to hang for treason. And in fact, one of them really demonstrates how, how stupid the whole idea that bagpipes were banned is. Um, his name was uh, uh, Nicholas Carr, or Kerr, which actually is a border name, but he came from up in Aberdeenshire. Um, not quite sure why a border should be up there, but um, that's his name and that's where he was. Uh, he, in his defense, claimed that he had been forced out. Hmm. Uh, in fact, a lot of people on both sides would have been forced out. If your Brilliant. chief says jump, um, you end up jumping. Okay. Uh, his plea was accepted and he was discharged. All right. He went home to um, where he stayed, somewhere near Huntley in Aberdeenshire, and uh, he was only there for a little while before he then moved down to Edinburgh, uh, where he started making bagpipes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, the idea that somebody who had, shall we say, had a near-death experience, having been charged for treason, where hanging was the the solution to the, right, <laughs> the challenge, right. um, to actually come to the centre of attention in the biggest city in Scotland and start making bagpipes, he was either a total idiot or <laughs> there was no problem with playing and making bagpipes. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's pretty good. I haven't heard that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on to a nice one, uh, one of your other questions. Um, uh, what information still surprises you in the archives? Uh, it's actually quite a funny one uh, in that nothing that comes up in terms of piping really surprises me that much. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I trawl through all sorts of material and uh, uh, I mean, Kirk Session records are a prolific source of finding pipers. And of course, pipers feature mostly in the Kirk Session records because they have done something which has upset the Kirk Session. Sure. <laughs> Um, usually with a young lady who they're not married to or various other sort of questions. Right. Um, but also I trawl through court cases and um, they sometimes produce, well, they produce pipers, but they are ones that unless there is a good reason to use them, I park to one side because the reasons that the pipers uh, in the court of session papers can sometimes be um, should we say, um, not the sort of thing that one really wants to deal with if you don't have to. Right, right. Well, it does have its uses. I, I, on one occasion, came up with a young lady who was accused of uh, child incest. And it turned out on reading the court papers that her father was the Borough Piper of North Berwick. Mm. And so it actually produced a piper that we had not known about before. And knowing the man existed, 
uh, Paul Stewart was able to go to the Haddington records and actually produce more information on him and show that, in fact, one of the Hasties was a, a Borough Piper at North Berwick. Um, she was unfortunate. The general consensus of the various midwife type ladies who looked at the corpse pronounced that it was probably stillborn. Um, the local doctor pronounced it was stillborn. But then um, it turned out that he might have been the father. Jeez. <laughs> oh, and uh, a clear example of, um, should we say, the divide between status in those days, um, because of the uncertainty, she was sentenced to be, sentenced to be transported to America um, and with a threat that if she came back, she would be actually sentenced to death. He was merely required to leave Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> to his own destination of choice. But anyway, to get to the point, um, I often find things in court of session papers which, as I said, they are on the murkier side, real murkier side of life. But in the general stuff that I rummage through, the surprises I find quite often are more likely not to be related to pipers and piping, but simply things that I come across in the process of working through the records. For example, on one occasion, um, it was late late 17th century, early 18th century, from, as far as I recollect from the top of my mind, um, it was the, uh, the Earl's accounts. And um, he had paid the local blacksmith for removing uh, two bad teeth. <laughs> I don't know. He's got tolerance, I, I guess, right? <laughs> well, when you think about it, blacksmiths have these long, long... Um, tools for handling hot metals. Yeah. Just a thing for hooking out a tooth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, that's the sort of thing that um uh, that surprises me. Um I don't think anything that piping produces would really fall into that. So I, I you know I spend a lot of time looking at archives um trying to find like discussions of indigenous people and women and that is always just not not there. So it feels like you have to read absolutely everything to find that one little kind of tidbit that actually relates to what you're looking for. And I'm getting the sense that that might be sort of what you're doing too, of having to read everything, hoping to get a reference to piping out of it. Or is there is the stuff you're using, is it searchable pretty easily at this point or is it still just a slog? Well, um, though there's digitization programs and in actual fact, things like the accession records, you can are now digitized and you can actually search them from home. But a lot of the stuff I trawl through is not the sort of things that um, archives would put at the top of digitization uh, in that um, they start with the material that everybody wants to search for various right. reasons, birth, deaths, marriages, co-obsession records. Um, the sort of stuff that I trawl through are bundles and bundles of receipts and uh, the basic nitty gritty of running an estate and so on. Um, yeah. Even... Well, even apothecaries' accounts. In fact, that leads to another non-piping or semi-piping amusing story. Um, I was trawling through one um, collection, uh, and periodically the uh, local apothecary was sending the the laird his account for his services up for the next three months or past three months or whatever. And as I ran my eye down them, I did once, I think, find, yes, one of the um, McGregor Pipers uh, in the Red Orbin papers had been treated by the local apothecary, but with the Earl picking up the bill. So on the chance that Pipers might feature uh, along with the other family members, I ran my eye down the columns and I came across what looked like 
or seem to read, uh, bagpipe and solution. And the bagpipe was spelled B-A-G-G-P-Y-P-E, but B-A-G-G for bagpipe is not an uncommon way of spelling it. Right. I it and thought, what on earth is an apothecary doing with a bagpipe and solution? Um, I was dubious, but I had it photocopied for me in my usual sort of pile of stuff. I had photocopied every week, put it to one side and forgot about it for about three months. And then I came across another um, bill from the same apothecary. And this time it wasn't quite so crammed up. And what in the first account looked like a second G making double G for the bagpipe, when the word was, words were spaced out, it was the... Um, uh, I don't we call it the thing for and, you know, the. Oh, sure. The, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was bagpipe. Sorry, it was bag and pipe and solution. And at that point, the penny dropped. It was an enema set. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Solution sounds like such a modern word for that. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that that's already around. Um, uh, well, it's surprising you only for an enema set. But <laughs> <laughs> as I said, it was, it was fortunate that I hadn't jumped the gun and so. Proclaimed, ah, um, they sent the bagpipes to an apothecary to have them seasoned. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Mind you, there was a lovely gag poem. I think, actually, we might have touched on it in one of the all round discussions with Matt and Pete and company. Um, it's, again, once you have to cut it out of the, out of the talk. Uh, the Gallic poet is writing and composing just after Sheriff Muir. And he takes a, a, a nasty dig at Konduli Rankin, who wasn't involved, he was at home. Um, and um, in the actual poem, uh, refers to him with a mackerel in his hand, rather than coming and fighting. Yeah, mackerels. Yeah. Yes. Let's move on. I don't know, I think uh, that has to stay in, that's pretty good. I was looking at your questions. Um, I guess I guess that's it. Sort of speaks to the the next question on here. I think we've touched on a little bit, but um, what, what I I don't know. I, the idea of finding stuff in the archives about bagpiping, like for me, I have found uh, there's maybe three references. Uh, there's two references to a piper during like during the time period that I'm looking at uh, in the fur trade um, that are him and like named him or one is named him and, and his name shows up, but it doesn't mention he's a piper. Um, so it's just clear that like lots of people are talking about this guy as a piper um, or talking about this guy, but not mentioning he's a piper. So that next question of what are the archives surprisingly good at telling us about kind of bagpipes or piping or pipers. And I guess that speaks to your estates, like going through these estate papers, how often does piper stuff come up in there? Um, well, let's think of a scale. Uh, quite frequently, uh, I mean, particularly if you, if you hit an estate piper, then he's going to be there for a little while. So you can more or less try and follow him through the accounts. Um, Accounts are great things. I mean, everything is detailed. And um, so if he's being paid in one year, then you're likely to be able to keep on going and find him in other years as well. Um, the archives, uh, archive material are very good in finding um, pipers, to a certain extent telling us um, what their function was, um, how well remunerated they were, and um, material like that. But 
they are not very good about telling us about exactly what the instrument they were playing was like. Sure. And this, of course, is the big problem. Um, we know from the records that in Scotland by 1600, in fact, slightly beforehand, that's 1590s, um, they were describing a large and a small bagpipe. And so they certainly were two sizes. Um, we also start to find around about the same time that um, you have reports of uh, a semi-military use, not with the official military, but um, bands of armed people who are upset about something and heading off to do something about it, led by, um, led by a piper, usually playing what was described as the great pipe, which is basically the same as the Gaelic Pied Voris, it's just great piping Gaelic. But again, it tells us nothing very much about the actual instrument. We do know now from some records, court records that turned up in uh, a case in Glasgow uh, in 1630, 1630s, uh, one piper taking action against the other. Um, the uh, piper had supplied certain items to the other guy who hadn't paid up. <laughs> he um, accepted the fact that he hadn't paid up and proceeded to pay up. But okay. the items were quite useful because they included a bellows. Oh, all right. Um, if, uh, they included a another, um, effectively, another tenor drone for a, a large set. I mean, it was obviously, it was the two different sets of pipes, one of which clearly was using a bellows. And it was clearly adding a, another tenor drone to an existing pipe. Huh. So it actually enables us to push backwards the point at which we know that bellows were being used on pipes in Scotland. Sure. So that, that was lucky. Um, we, we And two tenor, I mean, I guess we don't know that there was already a tenor drone on that set, but I guess that's that's the more old set, isn't it? It's just two tenor drones. Well, it might have been just a large pipe with a bass drone. Right. Which they wanted, which he wanted to add a tenor, or it might have been uh, a large uh, bass drone and a tenor drone, to which he wanted to add a tenor to make something similar to the modern instrument. But again, unfortunately, um, but 1630s, I guess, I guess that's what I'm saying. Though 1630, that would be a pretty cutting edge setup, wouldn't it? I mean, I guess we don't know, but for Highland pipes, thinking of two separate tenor drones and a bass drone, I always think of that as sort of a 18th century development but maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong about that well i shy away from try i, I try to shy away from using some highland pipes because sure. uh in the earlier days i'm not sure there's a distinction there yeah. all that much difference between right. a large pipe being played in the lowland and a large pipe being played in a Gaelic speaking community what was played on them different yes Right. But the actual instrument, I am not at all sure, would have had all that much difference other than that each instrument in those days would have been custom made. So you're going to right. get a considerable variety within within um, the type of pipes around anyway. Yeah. Um, of course, the other thing which people, uh, it actually ties up with one of your questions, um, what do I wish was more common knowledge in piping history? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, people tend to not appreciate that if you looked at the total piping population of Scotland over the centuries, 
if we jump back to 1600, uh, say 17th century, even into the 18th century, then in terms of the total piping population of Scotland, um, Highland pipers would have been a minority. Yeah. A considerable minority. It was only after the military demand, uh, which was also tied into the start of competitions, that you see that switch over and the number of lowland pipers or number of people actually playing lowland pipes start to disappear. And lowland pipers start turning up also in highland regiments playing highland pipes. Mm. Uh, but of course, the music they're playing is what the military want. And so they've moved away from the more traditional um, music played on highland pipes or by highland pipers. I, I spend so much time playing reels and jigs and things that I, I don't really, I, I feel like I, I just discount marches, I guess. I just completely discount marches and I don't really think about them particularly in detail, but that's like Highland Pipers, even the minority of them playing for military excursions and things. Do you think of them as like playing marches and like using being used to motivate people to march in step? or just think of them as playing music to like keep morale up and motivate people to do things, if that's a question that makes any sense. Well, I think, well, motivation, I think that has always been uh, part of the bagpipes usage when it became more militarized. Yeah. Um, I mean, the idea that uh, a piper led uh, his regiment or company or whatever uh, in the actual attack is a total nonsense, particularly when you move into the 17th century and the use of the Highland Charge, which was uh, basically um, get uphill above the opposition, uh, move down rapidly, uh, almost running, till you get within a musket range, fire your muskets, and then while they're still disorganized, draw the sword and continue the charge. Right. Um, I've always had this mental image of uh, a bagpipe player trying to lead that charge running downhill at speed and uh, dying halfway down because of blowpipe sticking <laughs> out the back of his neck. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't, yeah. doesn't yeah. ring true, but this is an image. What there's a great, uh, there's yeah. that great uh, Walt Disney, uh, Rob Roy movie, which I'm, I'm sure I assume you've seen, but they're doing a Highland charge. And at one point they have the piper marching down and very clearly he throws his bagpipes down and draws a sword to, to join in the charge. That's, that's always been my well, image that, of it too. That is not too far either way. That's not too far from reality. Um, what the pipes were used for prior to the battle uh, was to actually raise morale. Yeah. Uh, you're standing there waiting to be given the order to advance or whatever, um, uh, particularly if you're standing there looking at the opposition. And sometimes, I mean, at Killer Cranky, I think the two sides stared at each other for a couple of hours before they ordered to actually launch the charge downhill on the Jacobite side um, took place. Now, if you're standing there looking at the opposition and you may not have been too enthusiastic about being part of the whole setup anyway, go back to uh, our friend from Culloden who was right. forced out. You've been forced out. Um, you, you, you're not too enthusiastic and you're standing there looking at what potentially might be a charge down to your death. Well, the piper certainly has a, uh, a function there to play martial music to keep your spirits up. Yeah. I've always thought of, I, I think maybe too romantically, but in my head, that's where Pebrooks come in. Like 
where either you play and, and my, the way I've discussed Pibrook just kind of the without really thinking about it too hard, but just like without researching it too hard, but thinking about it too hard, I guess is what I've done is always thinking of it as if you're playing a Pibrook that is about like that community, like if you're sitting there and you're having to fight, you're not terribly excited about it or you're nervous about it. And then you're hearing, you know, a Pibrook that's about some battle that your great, great granddad took place and that that would like bolster your, your confidence. Or uh, I've always, I've wondered too, if there was some like Pibrooks that were just poking fun at the rival community too, but I don't think I, I've actually, I can't think of any tunes that are like, this is a time the Campbell's screwed up. So let's, uh, let's remember the story associated with this tune. But well, I can think of one tune is poking fun at the opposition, but I think it was composed, it was composed after the event. And that was the, uh, the, the fight that took place when the Campbell's were taking over um, uh, Kate Ness. Mm. It was one of these sort of typical Highland things where the the Earl of Argyle, uh, the Earl of Glenorchy at the time, uh, through uh, I, I think the Earl of Kate Ness died, and uh, through inheritance patterns, uh, the best claim uh, to the Earl of Kate Ness was held by the Earl of Glenorchy and of Bradobin. No, it would be Bradobin at the stage, the Earl of Bradobin. And um, he raised the force, went up there and uh, established his claim by force. And that was supposed to be the origin of the tune, the Carls of the Greeks, because the Cape Ness men were not Highlanders, they wore trousers. Oh, sure. Um, and so that tune is poking fun at the Cape Ness men, but it was a supposedly composed after the event and not beforehand. Right. Well, that's what I mean, is that then, uh, like, in my imagination version of this, then anytime you'd fight against the folks from Caithness, then you play that tune as a reminder of the time that, you know, they got the better of them in the past. Um, but that's also an assumption. I have my my interpretation of why Pebrook is structured the way it is, is so that everybody can recognize it. Like if the, if the same themes are repeated over and over again, you don't have to be terribly musically savvy to like recognize like, Oh yeah, that's Macintosh, isn't it? Like I can, I remember that tune and I remember the story that the Piper told that went along with it or somebody told, but this might be kind of entering into my imagined role of a Piper as a bard a little too much. Um, but I'm not sure. Well, if the piper was marching up and down in front of you and very close, you would you could take that approach. I mean, if the piper, the piper was fit enough, when the order to advance and charge actually did happen, you weren't too far wrong. He had a, the, the pipers had a, a boy with them, a ghillie. Hmm. And at that point, he would hand the pipes to the boy to look after, draw his sword and go with the rest. Oh, wow. um, so it's not too far-fetched. But the whole problem with that concept now... Um, I did an experiment, uh, I'm trying to remember how far back, maybe four or five years back. Um, Stuart Ledford had approached me because he had been approached by a group who were trying to uh, have a commemoration of the Battle of Killiecrankie and also establishing it as an annual summer event. Sure. And he had been approached. They were having sort of um, reenactors there to reenact the various parts of the battle. And he had been approached to be the piper. And uh, I got drawn in as the piping consultant <laughs> uh, to advise him on the sort of number of tunes that would have been around that time and might relate to that particular area. And they had a, on the actual day, they had a large arena marked out in the field where the battle, near where the battle took place. <clears throat> and um, the, 
the structure today was that uh, before the reenactors started, he would march on in full dress, uh, advance to the center of the field, uh, and then slowly march off again playing a pibroch. And uh, I think the actual area marked out was probably about 100 yards by 100 yards to keep the uh, spectators away from the, the um, eight soldiers, foot soldiers, and the four horse cavalry. Who <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> would then come on after he'd marched off. But I sort of was wandering around the perimeter and um, it became fairly obvious, but I already suspected that when he was advancing towards me, I could hear the chanter fairly well, but the drones just, no. Disappearing. They were pointing away from me. When he turned and started moving away from me, I could hear the drones, but not the chanter, or hmm. very, just the chanter. I could hear it was a bagpipe. But even though I had, in fact, I'd supplied the sort of tunes that were going to be uh, suitable, so I knew which tunes were being played, recognizing them, don't That's think so. Much. Yeah. And then later on that day, um, they were also, uh, they had a system set up where spectators could go off on a guided tour to further up into where the battle actually took place and where the various sides were standing. And so having sort of witnessed the, um, the seven strong foot soldiers and the four strong cavalry, right. Right. <laughs> I think one cannon and one cannon <laughs> several times, um, I joined this out of curiosity. And the interesting thing was that even though at the time I joined them, uh, this party, Stuart was actually playing. Um, as soon as we went past the first set of trees, nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Which, if you think about, well, if you think about acoustics, if you've got a piper standing on one side of a loch, flat body of water, nothing in between, then somebody hundreds of yards away on the other side of the loch would hear the piper. Right. If you've got a hill behind the piper, a slope, and it's not just a straight climb, it's sort of up, down, up, down, up, down. As soon as you're over the first hump, nothing. It's gone. Yeah. So travels in straight lines. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to remember the, I mean, I'm sh I don't know. I, I mean, obviously almost all of my piping has happened in North America, but um, I do remember, I can't remember the details of what it was, but uh, last time I was over in Scotland, we were driving the the winter roads or the snow roads, or whatever, in the Cairngorms, and I just pulled over and started playing, and it was just one of those like kind of misty days, and the sound, the way the pipes moved through the air. I don't think I was just being like an overly romantic American in Scotland, but it, like it really did. It felt like the sound was traveling way different with like the humidity levels and uh, the amount of moss and kind of just the vegetation there felt a lot different than playing in the forest in the in the states but anyway that is not related to that <laughs> discussion at all because mist mist does actually dampen sound yeah, yeah. um it, it, instead of having lots of air molecules side by side with the the energy that is the sound traveling and passing through them from one to the other um if you've got a large blob of water that energy gets dissipated much faster. So again, it comes back to acoustics. Yeah, I gotta just adjust my, I have a microphone that is just slowly, slowly moving here. Actually, I wanna make sure that my sound level is all right. Can you hear me okay over there? Yes, I'm fine. Okay, okay. <laughs> just uh, don't wanna find out at the end that I forgot to hit record or that you couldn't hear me the whole time anyway. Um, so I talking about Killy Cranky, um, that is a, a tune that I keep meaning to 
like do an episode on because it shows up in so many collections. Um, but it's not it's not about the battle, right? Or, or is the tune Killy Cranky associated with the battle? Do you know offhand? Uh, well, it's it's got words, and the words are certainly associated with the battle. With the okay. Battle. <laughs> this is a, a nasty on the spot question, but do you, I mean I'm just wondering since you were doing the the work with Stuart, did you did you have him play it like? It's obviously not a tune that existed then at the time of the battle, but I always feel well, like... <laughs> um, it was meant to be authentic. So what I'd supplied uh, Stuart with was the names of uh, a number of Piberach, which uh, would have been around uh, the play at that time. Yeah. And also I identified a number of pipers around who may well have been involved in the action. Yeah. Um, although I don't think... Uh, that didn't happen. One of us was supposed to give a lecture, I think, and that was going to be part of the lecture, but for some reason that, that section didn't happen. Um, yeah. I do remember they had one set of reenactors off, off the main concourse, but with a tent, where they spent the whole day demonstrating casting lead bullets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those reenactments are so, they're always so funny. They're like, they're, the. I remember going to an event in, in Tennessee here in the United States, and uh, it was an event in Johnson City area, but it was where this big treaty had been signed, where a huge contingent of uh, Cherokee people had showed up to sign a contract or, or sign some sort of a relationship with Daniel Boone and all those guys. Uh, I think it's Daniel Boone at Sycamore Shoals. And it was this famous gathering of, you know, I think over a thousand Cherokee people and just a handful of uh, settlers. And there was one lone native person there, like representing the entire thousand uh, Cherokee folks and like some big names too. And I just remember going up to that guy, like, man, you're, you're having to do a lot of work here, you know, representing a thousand people <laughs> at this, uh, at this get together. But you sure it wasn't the Cherokee equivalent of the last of the Mohicans. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's the, the people that were there too. It's just, it was funny that the people that were at that signing, uh, many of them went on to be some of the most like ardent defenders of Cherokee land and titles. And it kind of, it caused a civil war of sorts between the Cherokee at the time. And it was just, it was just so funny to be like, man, the people that were here would hate this so much <laughs> that this is being kind of, there's one guy representing a single position and this is celebrated as like a great moment for Daniel Boone and company as opposed to what it was but reenactments are hard man they're very hard i don't i don't know um yeah so i guess um circling back away from from military stuff um you, you touched on a number of things with the state pipers that i got super excited about um like the the bellows and the drone uh is, is really interesting but like being able to track how pipers are accommodated or kind of settled I have so many questions. One, how common do you think it was for estates in the Highlands to have a piper or in Scotland in general? Are there estates in the lowlands where they start kind of doing the same thing? Like I assume that that happens at some point, but I wonder when that would happen. Um, so yeah, how many estates do you think had pipers? How small of an estate could you be and still afford it? Um, and then what kind of items are they talking about? Like supplying them with food and lodging or do they get into nitty gritty of like supplies of cane from someplace or, or that kind of thing, I guess. Well, um, again, one has to be conscious of uh, things changed with periods. Nothing remained the same. So sure. in looking at the um, the early references to pipers, which mostly start really becoming more prolific over the 
uh, 17th century, um, you have to set that against the background um, in the lowlands, uh, boroughs were the main center of administration. And so um, a borough piper, usually in conjunction with a borough drummer, uh, was uh, used to, well, to effectively wake people up in the morning and uh, tell them it was lights out and go to bed. Uh, most people didn't have clocks. And so you had a paid official, the, or two paid officials, the borough drummer and the borough piper. Um, the way they were paid in some cases is a bit interesting because uh, the drummer quite often had a higher salary than the piper. This wasn't a reflection on status. It was a reflection on the fact that if uh, there was a sudden urgent reason to alarm people, they needed the drummer to be on call the whole time. The borough pipers usually, having played in the morning, played in the evening, or were booked for certain functions like going around the marches every so often uh, to demonstrate where they were. The rest of the time, he was free to earn a living elsewhere, either by piping or in the case of some of the border pipers, the hasties in particular, I think, they were butchers. So the, the lower salary reflect the fact that the piper didn't have to be the whole, there the whole time and he could push off and uh, get extra money pay playing for weddings and such like. Okay. Uh, you had to be fairly, uh, well, you had to be a sort of fairly well-established and uh, wealthy individual uh, and estate in the, even the lowlands and also like piping to decide you actually wanted an estate piper in the lowlands. Well, there were some, but you'll find in most cases they were tied into the local boroughs. Okay. In the Highlands, there were no boroughs. If you start thinking in the 18th century even, but going back into the 17th, um, if you move west to Inverair and you move north to Inverness, then going north and west of that, uh, there's not much in the way of what one would regard normally as a borough. So the only people able to afford to maintain a, a local piper were the lairds. Uh, so you had this distinction in the lowlands, most of the pipers were on the establishment of the boroughs and paid through the borough funds. In the highlands, the laird had to pay them directly if they wanted a piper. And since most highland lairds were pushed for actual money, real money. The <laughs> um, easiest way to do it was to actually give them some land and possibly um, uh, additional um, food. But it was a sort of moneyless society. And um, it's interesting how you can see over the period from the 17th to the 18th century how um, that is starting to vanish and be replaced with a financial sum even with the way the pipers were being played, but being paid. Um, how well they were being paid, well, it depended on the estates and um, how wealthy the estate was. But the fact that an estate was wealthy does not mean to say that uh, it had lots of pipers. For example, um, the Bredolvin estate was huge. Um, but for most of the time, it only had one piper. Initially, it was the McIntyres, but then it became the McGregors. Um, 
other estates were so small that they couldn't afford to maintain a piper, so they didn't have pipers. Uh, or you had a situation which, uh, again, is an interesting example of how things went. Uh, the MacDonald estate on Skye, now following the uh, 1715 rebellion, uh, that estate was forfeited. Uh, when the leading people in Clan Donald or Clan Donald of Skye managed to arrange to get the estate bought back into clan lands, in clan hands, um, by that time it was the, the boy who was the heir to the, uh, the title. He was, so that was Alexander MacDonald, he was sent across to St Andrews to go to school. Uh, at the time he was sent over there, the estate piper was Angus MacArthur, and his young son, Charles MacArthur, was sent as servant and buddy with the young boy Laird to St Andrews. Okay. Um, whether it was cause and effect, I don't know, but certainly um, as he became Sir Alexander MacDonald of Slate, uh, took to piping. And the MacDonald estate, when, the, when Sir Alexander came back and took over running the actual estate himself, the MacDonald estate, which started with Angus MacArthur as his piper and with some sons, by 1730, 1740, uh, Charles MacArthur was sharing the whole of um, a holding with his father, Angus. Um, the elder brother, Ian, Ian Van, uh, was up in Uist on MacDonald lands there. And uh, another piper, uh, not, a, not a MacArthur, but a McIntyre, was down in Slate. And that left um, the youngest son, Neil MacArthur, floating around, uh, occasionally picking up payments. So you have an estate which over a 50, well, less than 50 year period, um, post 1715 to 1745, over that period went from one piper holding half of Hunglatter in North of Sky to uh, what? Ang Angus, Charles, Ian, Van, Neil, and uh, Malcolm McIntyre to five pipers. Wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, so Alexander, who was nominally on the government side during the 45, um, after, not long after Culloden, was travelling across the water on the ferry, um, being ferried across either from Skye to the mainland or from the mainland to Skye. He caught a chill and died. Yeah. <laughs> Quite young. yeah. His younger brother then inherited the title but had no great interest in piping, and so that is... The estate, the slate, um, what well, <clears throat> old Angus MacArthur had probably died at that stage, but the, um, the, the estate went from uh, four remaining pipers down to uh, two, then one. Um, <clears throat> the then son of uh, McIntyre down in Slate was the guy who turns up in the Black Watch in America. Okay. Uh, the McIntyre. Uh, who turns up in the Blackwater in America and whose son probably was also with him. Um, What's in, at what point at the, is that the Seven Years War or the American Revolution? The, the first one, when, we were, when, when the UK was fighting the French in America. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that with the, the military stuff, the, the accounts of piping in throughout that war very much are pipers leading the charge, right? Like there's the, um, I think it's the 78th. Most of the stories I think come from the 78th Frasers rather than the Black Watch, but where uh, at one point, somebody's angry that the piper is missing um, because they want to do a charge and there's no piper there. Um, and so there's kind of an anecdote about that. And then there's that much better known anecdote um, that shows up in Patrick McDonald's essay, right. Of, uh, or I guess not his essay, but the essay at the beginning of his collection uh, saying that, you know, the reason that we're losing here in Quebec is because you won't let the pipers play. So it's your fault, uh, General Wolf. And then Wolf saying, let the pipers play, damn it. And then they win the day. Um, but it's still, that's very much the, kind of stereotypical Piper leading the charge um, uh, kind of narrative, I guess, is from 18th century North American battlefields, kind of a different, very different setting uh, than Scotland <laughs> and clans fighting one another and that sort of thing. But... Well, neither of those Pipers, the, uh, the McIntyres, none of them came back. They died over there. Um, as did, in fact, the youngest MacArthur, Neil, he um, he initially was in Loudoun's regiment, but then, when that was disbanded, moved to Montgomery's, okay. and went across with Montgomery's regiment to that same uh, action, yeah. uh, fighting the French. Uh, and he he died over there, but the money that was on him when he died eventually returned to Scotland, and through the good offices of Lady Macdonald. Uh, was passed to his son, uh, who then proceeded to buy a set of pipes with some of it. Hmm. And his son was the gentleman who became known after he moved to Edinburgh as Professor John MacArthur, uh, and who was involved in the early piping competitions, except oh. nobody wanted to compete against him. <laughs> so you've got, you've got linkages right the way through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'd be curious. Um, yeah. There's, there's a lot of threads I want to tug on here, but um I, I am I'm curious about kind of your overall take on competitions. Um, I guess that was one of the questions I had is I've been curious to hear your take on the importance of competitions in Highland piping, the history of it and its legacy is possibly keeping piping from going extinct like lowland pipes seemingly nearly dead or did. Um, but also mm -hmm. there's this in, to me, like I always think a competition is really kind of funneling or choking off the variety of piping, but also means that it lasts longer and it's still around for, for us to enjoy today. But I'd be curious to hear your take on it. Uh, <clears throat> how to be diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly, well, what we now think of as the Highland Pipe and uh, the military and competitions all all linked together. Um, we know that the competitions were started uh, due to the fact that there was a distinct lack of pipers to supply the regiments that were raised to go across to fight the French in America. Um, sorry, no, wrong one. Uh, to, no, it was, it was the later one, to go across and fight you people when you were looking yeah. independent. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that was one, yeah. Um, the, the, the first war against the French for America had shown up that there weren't an awful lot of Highland Pipers around and it had nothing to do with Culloden or whatever. It's just that there weren't a lot of Highland Pipers around. Um, the second one, when they were trying to raise regiments in a hurry um, to um, stop the restless natives, um, 
chucking cotton and stuff overboard or whatever it was. No, tea, yeah, tea. <laughs> it was um, tea. Again, there was a shortage of pipers to fill these places in these regiments, but the, the regiments were a new demand. Pipers were already working on the state. We were not going to rush off to get themselves shot at. Yeah. So the regiments that were raised for that war were struggling. I mean, again, the second Fraser's regiment, which was raised for in 17... Uh, 1767, 66, 67. Um, they had two battalions, um, but in one of the two battalions, by that time, the official establishment was two pipers to the Grenadier Company and a Highland Regiment. That was there in the books, uh, so they could be paid. And uh, the first battalion um, of the two pipers, one of them was a Lowlander. And his name was Baxter from the top of my head. Um, Fraser's work hot off the mark, and several other of the Highland regiments were hot off the mark. The Athol Highlanders were a bit behind, and by the time they were raised, they had a provision of two pipers, but they couldn't find any. Mm. And so eventually they um, got some young boys and sent them to old John McGregor to be trained. Um, unfortunately, well, unfortunately for this end, um, we had surrendered to you lot the time these boys came out of training and so the demand for them uh, disappeared. But the people involved at the top, the lairds whose names the regiments were raised in, I mean, they weren't the ones who went off and did the fighting. They sort of contracted that down to the Lieutenant Colonel. But the, the, the lairds who were responsible nominally uh, for the regiments, like the Duke of Athol, Earl um, of and all that sort, um, these people were acutely aware that there had been a shortage of pipers for military purposes. They were also the people who also spent most of their time spending their clan's money down in London and formed the Highland Society of London. Yeah. And so the logic of starting the piping competitions to encourage the production of pipers for the military was all bound together. Yeah. What we see today stems from that, but I'm not sure uh, how close I would claim that what we now have developed from that uh, relates to what happened earlier. Um, it certainly has shaped things. Um, yeah. The military shaped things, as you mentioned earlier, um, marches start to come in. Uh, it swings towards far more light music. The competitions certainly were based on Pibroch, but even there, um, you can see changes. Um, the, uh, as a number of pipers wanted to compete, increased. And they obviously they were being successful. They were encouraging people to start taking up pipes and competing. But the number of people applying to compete were increasing in numbers. So you found that whereas in the early period, the evidence is that when playing a Pedro, the player would periodically come back to play a ground and then back into the variations. Yeah. That repeating the ground was cut out to shorten the whole event. Sure. Um, there is a theory, I can't remember where I read it, but the, the theory went that the pipers felt that by having the grounds cut out, they were being cheated of their playing time. And so deliberately slowed down the playing of Pibroch to <laughs> regain. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Um, I, I wish I could remember where I, I read it somewhere years and years ago. And it was a sort of a sensible suggestion, but I can't remember what, if any evidence was 
was there at all. But um, certainly you saw changes coming there. You saw changes in the nature of the instrument. I mean, for example, uh, in the early competitions, a number of pipers turned up playing bellows pipes. Right. I was just thinking that. And they, but that's, they were showing up explicitly for a Peebra competition. They were showing up for a Peebra competition. Basically, yeah. they were on the head and told to go away. Yeah. The people running the competitions did not want bellows pipes. They had their idea of what a Highland pipe was going to be. And it was going to be what was now being manufactured as the prize pipe. Right. That set the standards. So you had a, a pipe with a bass drone and two tenors. Yeah. And um, it, that lasted, well, the, uh, the bellows pipers were just blown, washed away. Um, pipers just playing two tenor drones were still turning up and competing. Unfortunately, we can't tell from the records uh, who was just playing two tenor drones and who was playing a full set with bass and two tenors. Mm. Um, that's one thing the records of the competitions do not tell us. What we do know is that around about 1822, um, pipers with just two tenor drones were discouraged. That's the word okay. that was used. Um, that came from uh, John Graham Dale in his notes on the competitions. Uh, there is nothing in the actual competition papers or in the minutes of the Highland Societies of Scotland or um, Highland Society of London, and I, I know both Ian McInnes and I have been through them, uh, there is nothing in there actually minuting that decision. And so the suspicion would be that, in fact, it was the other competitors saying, hey, why the hell are you letting this guy compete with just two tenor drones? We've got to try and keep three in June. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But up until 1822, Competing with two tenor drones was acceptable, but then that went. So over that period, from the start of the competitions, you had seen the repeating of the ground during the playing disappear. Uh, the pipe became more standard to having the format we see today. Um, so yes, the competitions certainly changed things a lot. Yeah. And of course, if you're having competitions, uh, to try and make it easier for the judges to judge, then again, you're starting to look for standardization. Um, and when um, piping began to be noted down, so you could actually have a score to follow if you were a judge, then that again would have, would have um, narrowed the, the choices and the freedom of expression. Yeah. That, I often have a feeling of sympathy for um, Kilberry. Yeah. He gets a lot of flack. And I don't think many people have actually read his introduction to his Kilberry book. Sure. That's my P. Brunch book and I've never read it. <laughs> yeah. I hope you read that. I hope you leave that submission. <laughs> that oh, yeah. No, I, try, I try to be honest about how bad I am at actually doing this big by history thing. I don't know. Um, if you read the introduction to his book, there are several things that become quite clear. I mean, he judged in competitions, but he himself um, suggests that the nature and structure of competitions results in a reduction in okay. diversity. Yeah. He also, all the people who slang off his actual settings, clearly makes the point that he doesn't try and make his settings accurate because they're not accurate. Somebody has to go to a, an actual piper who can play to find out how to play them. Right. So when people criticise his settings, well, he himself has said they're not meant to be taken too literally. Um, I feel I feel a lot of sympathy for him. <laughs> yeah. I, I've just 
I have dabbled in like looking at other other settings and looked at like you know Donald McDonald and Angus Mackay stuff, obviously. But I just I always come back to Kilberry. Like it's it's the first one that was my first exposure to it. So I'm sure there's some comfort there. But I like those settings. Like I I can understand what he's doing. They're easy enough to read. Um, some of those Angus Mackay and Donald McDonald ones just get to be a nightmare. Whenever the, when it was that time period when it was acceptable to have music, have the line of music just end in the middle of the line rather than start a new line, you know, to start the new part. I hate that. I just absolutely, it's impossible to like, I mean, I guess that's pointing out that you're not supposed to be reading the music when you're playing it. You're supposed to get this to memory, but I do a lot of sight reading for the podcast. So it, it um, drives me nuts. I was thinking about, oh, go ahead. McDonald following on from that, um, again, one publishes these things, but I doubt whether many people read it, but um, Roddy Cannon had spent years poring over various editions of Donald McDonald and identifying note by note uh, changes that have been made to the original printing plates. Um, I had a slight taste of that because while we were working on Donald McDonald's manuscript volume, another copy which appeared to be a first edition of Don, Don turned up. And so I got landed with the task of taking it out to uh, the Highland Society of Scotland Library at Ingleston, because their one is definitely a first edition and sitting there comparing the two note by note with a magnifying glass to just uh -oh. check they were from the same plates. But Roddy in, I think, yes, it was in volume one, the Don McDonald book, uh, somewhere near the back in one of the appendages, um, he lists every, detailed change in the printing plates that he had yeah. noted. Yeah. And then you came down to a discussion. And when it came to the manuscript with changes where there'd been a written change in the manuscript, it came down to a discussion. Some cases, yes, you could say, right, well, he's correcting in what effectively these days we would call a typo. Sure. But on other occasions, you sort of looked at it and thought, well, as he played through it and decided that's not what he actually played the first time round, and has changed it. When in actual fact, it might have been when he played the first time around, but he's now playing it slightly different the second time around. You know, it's you get this impression coming off of that that even the people at the time were not playing something set in stone. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I think again, that's one of the most powerful parts of that that essay in Patrick McDonald's collection is how much uh, how much he's saying, like, this is just one version I heard, but people would do it differently, you know, every time. And he's talking about singing more, I guess, in that section. But um, yeah, I always felt really empowered by that. And I think looking even at um, the the small music, the light music in his, in Donald McDonald's Peabrook collection versus the just light music collection, like he's got some similar tunes and the gracing is different, you know, all this stuff that if you come into Highland piping from the pipe band world where like and competition where everything has to be exactly the same every time uh, it feels really limiting and kind of, to me, it always felt unmusical where I had to be so specific and precise. Uh, it's stupid because I still listen to pipers that are able to do that consistently. Like everything is exactly the same and I'm envious of it. Um, but it, at, when I was learning and still a little bit today, it's like, ah, I can't, that feels not right for how people would express themselves musically necessarily. But Another another um, change I was I was going to ask you about um, of, of the competition is I think in Angus Mackay's notes on it doesn't he say the the first competition was all the judges were like upstairs and the pipers were playing outside the window so they wouldn't see who it was for for judging how how long did that go on do you know the like kind of blind judging um, not very long. <laughs> 
I was thinking um, around the 1820s, I think is when you start to see the category of like best dressed as well. So like, obviously it's gone by then, but um, I'd be curious what you think about the blind judging, but also what do they mean by best, uh, best outfitted or best dressed? Like any cool right. stories about funny Highland attire in that time period? But. No, we have to go back to the start of the competitions and the situation that existed then. Um, and this is the fact is where the um, active prescription does come into play. Following um, the 45, Highland dress was banned. Right. Unless you were in the military or unless you were the um, Duke of so-and-so. But basically, Highland dress was banned. Uh, so the general populace from 1746 onwards uh, in the Highlands were in trousers. Right. Unless they weren't. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I said unless they weren't. But yeah, I, I just I always love uh, Boswell and John and whatever. Maybe Boswell and Johnson are making stuff up, but like they talk about traveling through the islands uh, or the Hebrides and just every little kid they run into is, you know, barefoot and wearing a kilt and running or not every, but they definitely are encountering people in Highland dress. Um, well, that, was, that was much later on, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the seventeenth. Uh, it's before the act is lifted, but it's really late, late on. Um, children probably could get away with it, but uh, I mean, take yeah. Joseph McDonald. Yeah. Um, he didn't actually get a kilt. In fact, he didn't actually get bagpipes until he reached India. Oh yeah. And he was yeah. turned out to him by what he describes as a well-wisher in London. He wouldn't have been wearing bag uh, kilt in Scotland because he was still under the act of prescription. In India, on the other hand, as a, a semi, uh, well the. Uh, the India company was semi-military, so he was technically military, so he could weigh, wear that kilt outfit. Yeah. Um, so when you got to, well, 1783, when the competitions start, uh, a lot of the pipers, in fact, probably all the pipers who turned up, unless they were um, from a military regiment, and I don't think any were at that stage, all the pipers who turned up at that point, because uh, the act of prescription had only just been rescinded, would have been wearing their normal gear. Yeah. So the um, prizes for dress was to encourage them. I mean, they, they oh, started yeah. the competition encouraging people to play the bagpipes. The prizes for dress were to encourage them to get back into into kilts. Yeah. And I mean, a kilt. If your daily wear was a, a trousers and a jacket, and that's probably all you actually owned. Yeah. Um, the expense to having a full Highland dress uh, was quite high. It would have yeah. been beyond the the means of most of the average population. That makes the that makes some of the prizes being a full set and like various pieces of regalia or equipment make more sense too. Huh, that's cool. I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, all right. What other questions have we not? Uh, I think we the big one I really wanted was what do you wish more people knew about piping history. Um, Oh, this one I'm really curious to get your take on, uh, if you don't mind keeping on going for a little bit longer. Is that right? Um, so yeah, uh, when you, you sent me, I'm not sure if you sent me or if I saw like your published works and it's like, okay, so you've been writing about the history of bagpiping for a very long time. And I wonder, like, obviously there have been some, some consistencies where, you know, you can't quite kill this myth of the outlawed bagpipes or outlawed tunes and outlawed pipes or whatever. Um, but like, what are the big shifts in talking about um, about bagpiping history and just in bagpipers' interest in piping history? Like, has, is it at an all-time high now, all-time low? That sort of those sort of questions. Um, well, uh, I suppose I should start by being partly biographical. Um, uh, although I was a piper, I mean, I 
there from about the age of 11, I think I got my first practice charter uh, and went to a nautical training school in the south of England and uh, discovered rugby at the same time. And the two <laughs> things don't really integrate. <laughs> no. um, I had had a, an interest in Peterborough because I was working at a hospital in London and was uh, in a, with the London Scottish Regiment. And that's where the main London competition was held, including the prestigious Brat of Gorham. And so I had, um, shall we say, been leaning over the balcony, having got in for free, being a member of the London Scottish, listening to the competitions, yeah. and was intrigued by Peterborough. But I hadn't actually done anything with it. Uh, and then in 1969, um, I took a three-year contract with the Cape Provincial Health Board and vanished off to South Africa. Mm. Shortly after I got there, my mother sent me a copy of Francis Collinson's work on the traditional national music of Scotland, in which he had this floated this idea that um, Peterborough had developed from harp music. Right. I was stuck on a three-year contract, so I, by the time of the end of the contract, I could probably have recited the book backwards. <laughs> there were a lot of things that just did not gel. So when I got back to Scotland in 1972, um, having established a, a means of living and generating money at the way of joining the Royal Infirmary, I turned my attention to the research I couldn't do over the previous three years looking at this question. And the first question I asked was, okay, what do we know about the heart? Everybody said nothing. So I started looking <laughs> at And um, if I fell over piping, then yes, I was obviously interested. And also if you took the approach I had taken at that stage, which was don't look for a needle in a haystack because you probably won't find one. Just pull the haystack apart and find what's in it. Sure. <laughs> and find that approach, you fall over lots of things. I, I mean, over the years, I've collected probably more references in the early days to the viol and the violin in Scotland. Mm. And so um, I was really looking at it from the point of view of uh, did what was the origin of people? And the, the short answer is that no, it didn't come from that music uh, for very logical reasons. Um, but the changes that have occurred with the antiquarian interests that sort of came in around about the same time as the early competitions, you start getting uh, particularly landed gentry who've got states and money and time on their hands. With the antiquarian interests, the interests uh, particularly taken in piping tended to be more um, the romantic side of things. Yeah. Um, as you put it, the, the piper leading the charge at Killicranky or whatever. Um, over time, uh, and particularly with uh, more modern approaches to research, um, far more serious research has started to be done, although you still fall over an awful lot of rather romantic stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, people like Ian McInnes with his work on the uh, Highland Society London competitions, um, a lot of stuff about Roddy Cannon, um, uh, Adam MacDonald with his look at the, the background to the actual music. Um, there's a lot of serious research being done, but yeah. uh, still a lot of romantic, romantic stuff. Um, more and more now, uh, the research seems to be focusing on the early written music, mm. partly, I think, influenced by the conservator across in Glasgow. 
But in some ways, that may be producing its own problems in that uh, the people who are doing it obviously are young. <laughs> if you want to do a thesis or whatever, you're obviously at the lower end of the age spectrum. And therefore, they have a tendency to probably pay too much attention to what the dots on the lines say, rather than treating that as an attempt to note down something which was relatively amorphous in its original form. Sure. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I know that makes very much sense. Yeah. I think, I think too, like the, I wonder how much of the focus on the music is just how much more accessible that stuff is now too. Like I can, I mean, this podcast has been easy. It's so easy to do and to lead myself into trouble because like from my computer, I can just type in a tune name and find already somebody has done the work of like picking out concordances on traditional tune archive. If I want to get really good about it, I can look at Matt Seattle's list of concordances and something. Um, and then you can just type in any number of tune names into like National Library of Scotland's website and it'll pop up. Well, here's 20 different versions of that tune. And it feels like it's just never been easier <laughs> to, to like do uh, like a quick, a quick look at these, at these tunes um, and kind of oh. get focused in on the dots. But um, I'll tell you an illustrative story. Uh, I uh, had the privilege at times to um, rub shoulders with the uh, late William Matheson, hmm. who was the, the leading expert on uh, particularly on the singing um, uh, traditional verse. Uh, I also, at one stage many years back, had bought, uh, it was, yes, Seamus McNeil uh, had produced a, a book of pipe music and uh, I, the copy had come into my hands for some reason. And working through it, he had a setting of Oromore McLeod in there. And I'd always liked the tune. I mean, I knew the word, the, the song, as a song. And so I sort of picked up the chanter and sort of played through it and thought, yeah, sounds like a waltz. And so I <laughs> put the book away. Then I had heard Willie sing it. Um, it's sung in free rhythm, which means that obviously um, not every verse sounds exactly the same because the music follows the words rather than the other way around. Sure. But within the consistency of his singing, I thought, yeah, that's it. So I tried to hold the melody in my head until I got home, out with the charter, out with the book, and I followed the dots in Seamus's book, but I didn't pay any attention to the stems and whatever, just let my fingers right. follow my my brain if I have one. And I thought, hey, that's it, that's it. That's the way I want to play it. And so I started playing it that way. Then I heard Willie Matheson sing it again, and I thought, hmm, I've gone off the tune. So I reconcentrated what he was singing, kept it in my head, got home and got the chanter out and reset it. It was not until about the third time I actually managed to hear him sing it. Oh, he was saying it was on tape. Uh, Maureen McLeod was recording him for the CD they put out. And I hope he's changed it again. And then it, the penny dropped. Sure. He didn't sing it the same way each time. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Sung in free rhythm. Depending upon how he wanted to, you know, he was he was moving the emphasis on the words, and as the music followed the words, he wasn't seeing it the same way each time. And I think that is the problem with focusing down on uh, uh, where somebody has transcribed the tune from 
uh, from somewhere else. Right. That uh, the assumption is that even if you're transcribed from a known player, uh, piper, singer, or whatever, well, these days the competition, you get standardization, but um, if you go back far enough, um, they weren't set in stone. It depended on um, how the performer felt at the time, how they wanted to emphasize things at the time. And so even within one performer, you would get quite a degree of variation. Um, I, think, time they I, I think too, we take, we kind of forget, it's easy to forget just how much it was a solo instrument too. Like the, the world of piping today is so much about bands or, you know, constructing interesting harmonies for three to four pipers. Um, we just forget that like, that's, that's not how <laughs> the instrument functioned for most of its, most of its path. Right. So um, yeah. It definitely well, lends itself. Back, oh, that goes back to your question. What do I wish was more common knowledge about piping history? Uh, there is nothing Highland about drums. Right. <laughs> sure. Well, certainly. I mean, you had, um, going back, you had the... So this one, you, you, you wanted to be careful about how you talked about competitions, but you're fine to talk about drums. There's nothing. That's, that's bold. No, no, bold I've, I, I've, already, I've already uttered this in, a, in, a, in, a, in a paper I delivered to the People's Society Conference some years back, so it's not... Um, uh, people had plenty of time to read it and hang me. Um, <laughs> with the Lowlanders, and don't forget, the Lowland Pipers were in the majority for a long period before yeah. the Highland Pipers started to become the more common. Um, you had the barra drummer and you had the barra piper. And so the probability is that they played together. So you do have a, a lowland pipe working in conjunction with a drummer. Sure. But when you look at the highland scene, there were no drummers. Hmm. It's as simple as that. There were no drummers until you start to get the military involved. Right. Isn't, is there something about... Uh... I remember there, is it the first pipe band or the first pipes and drums working together at Crimea? I feel like there's something the, important. The, um, the first uh, the first reference to something that sounded like a pipe band, I think I actually found it in a newspaper report. It was around about the early 1800s, and it was a report of um, one of the McGregor pipers uh, who was piper to the High Society of London, but he, uh, in some sort of parade, he was in conjunction with uh, some drummers. Hmm. But, I mean, how it depends how you define a pipe band. Sure. Um, Angus Mackay, when he was looking after the the boy pipers in the Caledonian school, um, he at one time certainly seems to have organised a combination of pipers and drummers. Um, Military-wise, well, in the early, we know, yes, we know because of the uh, the warrants to raise the regiments, we know that from about 1775 onwards, Highland regiments were allowed to have two pipers to the Grenadier Company. Um, and the standard at that time was two drummers to every company. Um, There's a reason the warrants mention it, because if you raise a regiment, um, the paymaster is automatically going to pay the regiment for 20 drummers, 10 companies, 20 drummers, um, but he's not going to pay them for pipers unless you actually add the pipers into the warrant raising the regiment. Mm. Um, what the pipers actually did, as far as I can tell from reading through the various regimental order books at that time and uh, various other things, is uh, mostly that we used for recruiting. 
regiments at that time were always recruiting. They were short of people. Um, people died, not from war, they died from other factors, but there was quite a turnover. So regiments nearly always were recruiting wherever they were. And um, having a piper with your recruiting party is one way of attracting attention. Sure. And so as far as I can see, um, the major thing that the pipers were doing was recruiting. Um, I mean, I do remember there was one regimental order book, uh, I think it was the Red Orbe Fencibles when they were in Ireland. Um, the colonel instructed that the officers were stop, to stop taking the uh, duty piper with them when they walked out in the evening. Well, if you're an officer and you want to pull the local ladies, take a piper and organize a dance. You know? sure, right. <laughs> That's a good. This is a. Uh, I want to. I want to strike the um, the segue while it's there. Um, one of the things I've been. That I think we've we've corresponded the most about is this connection with Irish music and you know Scottish music, Irish music, and kind of their blending together. But I've never asked you or, or really had a good handle on. Um, and this might be out, outside of your frame of of interest, but like Irish war pipes, like the nowadays it's clear that like in Ireland, they just call Highland pipes war pipes, right? So the, the war pipes, is there a real big change in how, I guess, have you, have you looked into the like the Irish war pipes? Are they really just a military instrument? Are they, is this just insults based on kind of Highland regiments being used to, um, you know, enforce things in Ireland or yeah. Sean Donnelly would be the one to really uh, ask, but um, the understanding I have, is that what is currently called the the Irish warpipe is a relatively recent reinvention. Okay, because they come from Ireland. Like what we think of as Highland pipes start in Ireland and then come over, right? That's sort of the the trajectory, um, or is that debatable? No, they certainly had they certainly had bagpipes in the early period in Ireland, just as they had them in Scotland. But uh, where they came from is uh, a different question. Sure. Um, can we? Diver, di, Go back, yeah. <laughs> digress backwards, okay. Yeah. Um, the earliest reference to a bagpipe in the United Kingdom, which at that stage would also include Ireland, uh, is in the accounts for Edward I of England in 1280-something or other. Certainly long before Bannockburn. And the interesting thing is that you're looking at... Uh, what is basically at the upper levels, a um, Norman French world. They were everywhere and at the established at the top everywhere. I mean, Bruce himself, part of his ancestry was, was Norman French okay. uh, on his other side. Um, the uh, Normans in Ireland uh, were obviously Norman French. And so if there was a bagpipe at Edward I's court, 1280, whatever it was, then the whole of that Norman French world, looking back to France, Scotland, England, and Ireland, uh, would have known the bagpipe. Sure. Because they moved also. I mean, Bruce spent time with the court before he went off on his own. Um, so, you know, you're looking at one common, I hate to say common market, that's politically dodgy these days, but <laughs> one, <laughs> one common uniform um, group of people who are sitting at the top of society. And the interesting thing about that reference, that payment to a bagpipe in bagpiper in Edward's accounts is the accounts are kept in Norman French, but the word bagpipe is in what we now call English. 
which does raise the question as to whether it may have been an indigenous piper. Anyway, going on, um, Edward I's daughter, it was Eleanor, uh, in the other side of uh, 1300, I think still before Bannockburn, um, she played a piper, bagpiper. And in the accounts, um, Edward's accounts for the various forays of his armies into Scotland before Bannockburn, there are odd payments to pipers crop up there. Whether they are Scottish pipers, English pipers, whatever one doesn't know, because they're described as piper in Norman French. So <laughs> um, they, well, they might even be Normans. But sure. certainly the bagpipe was around. It was common to the Norman world, and that Norman world extended to Ireland and it extended to Scotland. Right. So if the Norman world in England can be shown to have bagpipes, then they were likely known in the other parts of the uh, the British Isles in the wider sort of sphere. Huh. I mean, it comes back to this question as whether bagpipes played at Bannockburn, and the answer is uh, qualified, probably, but not as people would think as a military. Well, not as people would think as a military instrument. Right. The bagpipers we know at that period seem to have been sort of in the amongst the minstrels of sure. the people at the top. And unlike today, where you take your uh, musical device with you, stick an earphone in, and you've got music there. If you wanted music on the move, you took your minstrels with you. And since right. you were paying the bill, they jumped. So um, the, the the top people at Bannockburn, Edward II and uh, his various earls and so on, if they had minstrels in their train, which was likely because uh, war wasn't all um, havoc. I mean, you had to get there. And so you'd be camping overnight in various places and you weren't entertainment. So yeah, the possibility that amongst the minstrels on the English side at Bannockburn, there might have been pipers is quite high, Yeah, but not military pipers in the way we think about them today. Right. I hadn't, uh, I, I think I had, I had heard that Edward the first thing before, but it hadn't really, it had, it had definitely slipped my thought. I hadn't connected it to Normans, you know, like to the to that that influence and how far reaching that was that's great um hmm. well i don't know that i have um i feel bad i i i've i've really appreciated uh the i, I haven't read everything you've written because like i said I'm, I'm pretty bad actually at doing bagpipe history uh but the things i have read have really been helpful for kind of understanding that 18th century period and early 19th century and i feel bad that this talk has all been very uh kind of Highland pipe centric and Scottish centric. Cause I'm, I just love the the work you've done of tracing these Irish pipers in, in Scotland, but I have already kept you for nearly an hour and a half. So I feel like I should let you go, <laughs> but. Well, but one uh, to reemphasize uh, the one thing that if ever, anybody listening to this talk hasn't gone to sleep already, <laughs> sure. my, my written work is even better. You'll be asleep by the end of the second paragraph. <laughs> but if uh, people are still awake, uh, or have just turned it off and gone and done something more interesting. Um, the one point I would like to get through is that in the early history of piping in Scotland, um, taking pipers as a percentage of the population as a whole, the numbers of lowland pipers greatly exceeded the number of highland pipers up until around about the mid 18th century. Then, partly produced by the demand from the military side for what was now called the Highland Pipe and Piper, uh, the Lone Pipers tended to, or the Lone Pipe tended to disappear and 
you see increasingly lowland names appearing in the so-called Highland regiments and in the amongst the pipers in the Highland regiments. Yeah. But this concept yeah. of uh, this Highland pipe, which went back into the myths of antiquity, is is not true. Sure. Um, probably yeah. what developed was the original grape pipe in a variety of forms became bellows blown in the lowlands because uh, they couldn't be bothered breathing and also kind of playing <laughs> for dancing and you could end up playing a long long time if you're playing for dancing right um i was reading uh, uh, one of the gals and i think also actually you know, the boyhood of scott skinner the famous um aberdeen fiddler yeah. and his boyhood he's with his brothers was quite good and they went to play for dances for the gentry in 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 they used to have a center dance school and they would be playing for dances continuously from 12 in the afternoon to two in the morning where they would reform a new set of dancers there would be a slight break but they were basically playing continuously from 12 in the afternoon to two in the morning now since a lot of the lowland piping would have been known for dancing public dancing um they were playing uh, for an awful long time then yep uh bellows is a much easier way of approaching it yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I, in the Highlands, um, they had a slightly different approach. They were playing whatever they were calling people rock, but they were playing a discrete piece, which had a limited time ending, right. and therefore they stayed with the mouth blown great pipe. Yeah. So one of the so the the numbers one of the things that you've talked about elsewhere that has intrigued me too was the cost of the instruments, but Highland pipes weren't any more expensive than what we think of as, I mean, what we think of as Highland pipes weren't necessarily any more expensive than what we think of as Lowland pipes, or, or do you think they um, or were they? They're probably less expensive. Um, the, as far as I can tell from everything I've seen and found, uh, the pipe makers in the early days were Lowland turners. Okay. Uh, I mean, we know for sure that um, Donald uh, McIntyre uh, was sent by the Earl of Albane in 1674 uh, to Edinburgh to get a set of pipes. And that is the set of pipes that are now known, or the bits of it that are now known as the Bannockburn or McIntyre pipes in the Fort William Museum. Um, that, as far as I can tell, has always been the case that the they were pipes, no matter who they were for, were made in the lowlands or in a town or borough by a borough pipe, by a turner. Those are those um, those are the kind of the funky looking pipes in that museum, right? Like they're is it uh, like a square chanter or something? Or um, well, they were they square were mouthpiece. They were stored and played by um, McDougall, but um, it's got us the the blowpipe. Apart from the first section for the mouth is square. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, uh, it's got uh, the original parts is the chanter, um, which appears to have also had its pitch changed because the 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 pitch hole. Uh, uh, it's got two pitch holes in it at different, slightly different levels. Right. You know, the hole drilled through sideways at the bottom of the chanter to produce the low pitch. Okay. Um, it appears to be adjusted. Um, so it's the the mouthpiece, the, the, sorry, the blowpipe, the top of a, what appears to be from the size a tenor drone and a chanter. Um, that was all restored by um, McDougall and put into a bag. And I believe it has been played fairly recently. Um, yeah, I thought it would be desirable because its age was probably the oldest surviving bag surviving bagpipe in Scotland. But um, 
We know definitely not from the Battle of Bannockburn, but still old. <laughs> no, that, that, that's the there is a Bannockburn connection, but it's not. It's a late one. It's uh, okay. um, the McIntyre's, uh, or rather the Ming's, Ming's family Piper, who was McGregor, replaced by the McIntyre's. But the McGregor who they replaced was living next to what had been or previously called. Croft owned by Bruce. And so if you got Bruce Croft, you start thinking of Bruce and you start thinking of Panic Run. That's, okay. that's, the, that's the mystical connection. That's great. Um, we know, going back to the purchase of this place, we know that um, Donald Roy McIntyre was given uh, 20 pounds, Scots, by the factor uh, to go to Edinburgh to get the pipes. That was not the cost of the actual pipes. They were within that because that was the cost of his traveling to Edinburgh, staying there, having the pipes made, presumably under his direction, and then coming back. And also he managed to acquire a wife in Edinburgh while he was there as well. So uh, <laughs> it didn't go well. <laughs> so 20 pounds can go a far away, I guess. Um, but wow. the earliest references we have to cost of Highland pipes uh, and uh, are probably a about £2.50 Scots. Okay. Now, we do have a comparison roughly about the same time, um, which I've published somewhere or other in common stock. Uh, I worked my way through the uh, borough accounts for Stirling. Yeah. Uh, pulled out all the borough papers I could find. And also, on several occasions, there were... Um, costs allocated for pipes for various reasons. I think one was to having a certain repaired, uh, these would be low and borough pipes. Uh, on, another occasion, on, on several occasions, in actual fact, it was to have a bag, fresh bag made for the pipes. Hmm. And that gave a, a sort of an idea of the costs of, of, well, cost of at least having a bag fitted. Um, it was actually quite interesting. The, 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 we were using two, it was two skins to make a bag for a set of pipes. And the first thought was, well, um, they must have, well, I think they were, the sheep in those days were slightly smaller. But then it sort of suddenly, the penny again dropped. And that is that uh, from a small sheep, you could get enough leather to fold it over to make the shape for a bag. But when you then sew the seam, you need to use a strip of leather to over sew through the seam to right. actually stiffen up the seam. And so the logic would be, yes, Two, two skins, one to actually make the bag and the other to provide this continuous strip of leather to oversew yeah. the, the lower seam. Yeah, the welt or whatever, yeah. <laughs> but so those, those costs are there. But the impression I have is that on the whole, the Highland pipes would have been slightly cheaper than the Lowland pipes. Hmm. Well, apart from anything else, you've got to add the, uh, the bellows if you're having a bellows. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, I and guess... Also, there's certainly non-bellow blown lowland pipes though too, right? Like the that's not. Um, am I am I wrong in thinking that? I mean, I guess I'm thinking of English pipes more. How often they they kind of look similar, but are mouth blown. Um, well, if you go back to the 17th century, then the bellows, the 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 great pipe or large pipe, uh, where the highland or lowland would have been probably mostly mouth blown. Sure. Um, but over time, uh, the, the bellows certainly seems to have come in the, through the lowlands. Um, and uh, as I've already intimated, um, it makes sense because if you're predominantly playing for dancing for a long period of time, uh, a bellows is much easier on yeah. the whole works. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's great. 
Okay. Well, uh, so you're the the big takeaway. I've talked over your big takeaway, which is just that uh, Lowland Pipers outnumber Highland Pipers. It's interesting how much those Highland pipe, those early collection of Highland piping um, of Highland piping music, how much of those tunes are sort of like you see Lowland tunes, like what we think of, what I think of as Lowland melodies, kind of being played on on Highland like in William Gunn and David Glenn's collection and stuff, just how much the the standard, well, this is a Scottish song, how much that music comes from the Lowlands and that sort of supports that idea, I guess. The reflection of the Lowlands are starting to become Highland Pipers. Right. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sad fact today, but uh, no one say the tail has grown bigger than the dog. Um, with with packing taking off worldwide yeah. and why not we, we live in the modern world yeah. um but uh to find uh a genuine highland piper if you use the definition of a gaelic speaking piper playing in a traditional line within a still gaelic speaking community today um well i think the mcdonald brothers might just drop into that into sure. that slot. But, you know, there's not going to be that many, particularly because the Gaelic-speaking world has shrunk considerably uh, uh, in over the years. Yeah. But, you know, they are today, and uh, well, whether they would qualify joining a sort of Gaelic-speaking piper still in the living tradition uh, would qualify as the tail of the dog, I doubt it. The world has just grown so big. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's the definitely in, in doing indigenous history, I think we're more cognizant uh, of talking about like indigenous American history of the challenges kind of going back to what you're talking about a written source. Like you, you're really cognizant of where do these sources come from and you have to be really skeptical of them and really aware. And I, 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 I gather from what you're saying that that's less apparent to people looking at um, kind of bagpipe music history as there's more, um, there's not as much analysis and, and care about, um, there's not as much care about kind of being aware of the limitations of the written sources. And, you know, and even though, you know, people like the the Kilbury book or Patrick McDonald's essay there points out like, this is just one possibility, but there's this tendency to prioritize too much the, the, the note on the, on the staff. To well, to uh, try and defer my being hung for slagging and drumming. <laughs> um, with the example you gave of an indigenous American community, then um, you're dealing with uh, trying to uh, encourage the continuation of a living community. Right. Um, so your objects are slightly different. If you're a living community, you still need a history, you still need a background. Um, with piping, we are merely talking about uh, a music played sure. on an instrument. And there are lots of people worldwide who've been impressed by well, a pipe band marching down the road or whatever, who've taken up piping and have no connections um, in any way with, with Scotland, let alone the Highlands, let alone yeah. Gaeld. Um, there's no reason why they should really look at history. If they like the sound of the bagpipes and they like what they're doing with the bagpipes, um, it's a free world and there's no reason why they shouldn't do that. Right. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. 
if you are though going to start looking at history, that's where the question of separating out um, the fact from the fiction comes in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's it's awkward. I mean, at, at this point, um, probably half of the podcast listeners are are from the states, but the other half are kind of spread out <laughs> across uh, like fifty other countries. And I, I know for me, my interest in piping as an American kid that wasn't you know found out long after the fact had like some Scottish ancestry, but not in any meaningful way whatsoever. Um, like, it's just, it was such good music, you know, it was just such a impactful thing of like, oh, that drone is so nice. It's just so loud and it's so powerful stuff. Um, and I don't know, the, the, it's weird how much Scotland becomes a mythical place to you uh, if you are only it, like, I, I, I keep coming back to this, um, this argument that gets rehashed every so often on that Lowland Border Piping Society page about how come I can't call these things borders or highlands uh, rather than calling them by a name that indicates that that place is actually a real space. Like the highlands are a real place that people live in and it isn't just an instrument for you to, to make music with. Um, I think it can be hard uh, for people that are really disconnected from uh, the history to kind of understand where that argument's coming from. But. Well, I must admit, I, I, um, I know Matt. Matt uh, prefers these borders, but um, well, border pipes. That, he prefers border well, pipes over borders. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that is a a fairly late term. Yeah, um, yeah. the earliest. So breaking it down, the earliest reference, in fact, to lowland pipes as opposed to lowland pipers. Yeah, first reference I know to lowland pipes is around about 1800 when it's a obituary notice for somebody who was described as the last lowland piper in, I think it was Angus, uh, hmm. or somewhere up near Dundee way. Um, but that is not, you know, I've never seen lowland pipes applied to the instrument. But you then again have this fact that in Scotland, um, and it also makes it difficult at times to, in the very early days, to know if you really are looking at a piper, um, the tendency was to refer to them as just pipes. Right, pipes. yeah. I think that's Matt's, uh, Matt's default favorite word for it is my pipes. Like that's what, that's what bagpipes are called, is my pipes. Like, um, um, I'm a, well, I'm an internet Luddite, uh, came late, only when I sort of faced up the fact that it was the way one had to go. And when I first got a PC, um, I found the uh, Bob Dunsire site. Yeah, yeah. And I used to sort of read the posts on that. And I got to the stage where um, I could guess with quite a degree of accuracy whether the person posting was from Scotland, uh, Ireland, or elsewhere in the world, particularly America and Canada. Right. Because if they refer to themselves as a bagpiper, then 99% of the time they were going to turn out to be American. So funny. Huh. As opposed Even to... Like Scotland, yeah, if you say... What do you play? Oh, I played the pipes. Right. Um, uh, well, he's a piper. The the qualifying bit in Scotland, for some historical reason, the qualifying bit as to what type of pipes it is. This is why I said it's very difficult to know from the records when you even when you go far back, what sort of instrument the bagpipe is good at bagpipe. What clear sort of instrument it is, is simply because they don't put that qualifying bit in front of it. Right. The only qualifying bits are small and large, so you know that they had a. Large pipe, I have a small pipe. Yeah. Beyond that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, I did have it, that very much makes sense, though, from, I mean, it doesn't necessarily make sense uh, going back 
too far. But for me, like I, I ran into a problem with coming up with a title for that Pay the Pipe Maker album because I can't like I, I like the use of bellows pipes as like a that also seems like a historic way to delineate between the two. But, but like I play Ellen pipes on bellows. I play small pipes on bellows and I play lowland or border pipes on bellows. So that doesn't really work. Um, and, you know, between like big and small pipes is also not a particularly helpful description because you know, like they're small pipes. Some people might argue Ellen pipes are smaller than big pipe. It's just all, yeah, I think as the world has gotten smaller, you know, uh, where everything, like so many people play multiple instruments, you kind of wind up being more uh, dependent on adjectives and like descriptors uh, to delineate what type of, what type of pipes you're playing, but yeah. There is, so it touches on, uh, it touches on cost. Um, going back to the question of why, uh, we know from the Grant painting, that we have a picture of Grant's Piper, um, 1714, he's standing there in full gear, although some of it is what came from Grant's original regiment. I'm sorry, I'm looking away because I've got a copy of it on the yeah, wall. Yeah. But a three drone pipe, albeit two drones come out of the same socket, and it's got a, a huge Grant banner flying from it. Yeah. We then know that um, a lot of pipes during the 18th century, in fact, did not have a bass drone. And in right. fact, that was the case, as we've discussed up until about 1722 in the hindsight competitions. When we 1822, yeah. yeah. Um, I have a theory because I had, in reading through the various uh, documents and papers and accounts, I have identified four purchases of banners for pipes. Oh, that's all around <laughs> about the same time. The grant is one of them. Yeah. Um, the Duke of Gordon coughed up money for one with his armorial on it. Um, uh, who else? Uh, Duke of Montrose. Uh, yeah. These are around about, sort of in the period, about 1707 to about 1720, all around okay. about the same period. Duke of Montrose, and uh, who was the third one? Uh, Athol, Duke of Athol. And they all coughed up money in the accounts for pipe banners. Huh. Uh, I've seen... Pipes. <laughs> now, these pipe banners, interestingly, they all came out around about the same cost. They all, because they were heraldic banners, they'd all been painted by the heraldic painter in Edinburgh. <laughs> and their costs all were between the 40 to 44 pound Scots mark. Holy cow. Now, a set of pipes at that time, we know, would have cost about two pound 50, no, yeah. two pound in shillings Scots. So you're looking at the banner costing God knows how much more than the actual set of pipes. Even yeah. when we get through the competitions, though, um, people don't tend to realize this, but apart from the prize pipe, the piper who won the prize pipe also got a high in the society pipe pennant to go with it. Hmm. And those pennants cost 11 guineas sterling. Wow. <laughs> okay. The pipes at the time were being got from... Uh, the Edinburgh maker, uh, who top rate was charging seven pounds something. So you're looking, you know, you're looking at this. If it's ostentation for either the Highland Society or the patron of the piper, money is no object to have this right. huge banner. Uh, the actual pipes that are hang on, well, two pounds, three pounds. 
It doesn't matter so much. What crossed my mind when I saw these payments for the pipe banners was that for those poor pipes, I think I can say they must have had base drones because you cannot hang a pipe pennant on two tenors. Yeah, yeah, that would be challenging. <laughs> wow, that's wild. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen, um, I'm not sure how old it was, but there's that pipe banner on display at, um, at Inverary Castle um, in one of the, in one of the rooms. It looked old, but who knows, you know, <laughs> but like painted the same thing, like you say, though, painted and silk. It's wild that it's so expensive. Have you ever seen the, um, the 84th Royal Highland Regiment's uh, pipe banner? I don't think so. Send you a, I must send you a scan of it. Um, the regiment was raised in Canada, um, but uh, they weren't on the Canadian establishment. Therefore, the, the high Yehidians there um, declined to actually provide them with uniforms and stuff. So um, the gentleman who eventually became McLean of Loch Bui had to come back across to the UK, uh, down to the War Department, and then set sail with a ship loaded with the uniforms and ammunition and arms and all the rest of it for the 84th Regiment. Yeah. And... Um, while he was here, he appears to have got a pipe banner because he said he took a piper back with him, uh, a Neil Gillis McLean. And uh, because regimental numbers tended to change, the banner followed the regimental numbers. And eventually the 84ths were disbanded at the end of the that particular war. Um, I guess it was the war with you again, wasn't it? <laughs> um, uh, that particular war, the 84th were disbanded. And a lot of them actually stayed in Canada. But the uh, 84 number got recycled and eventually arrived in an English regiment. And the pipe banner arrived at the English regiment. And it's now in the museum. I think it's the Leicester regiment. Anyway, it's a very attractive banner because it actually has a quatrain of Gallic verse. Oh, cool. Um, which is an exhortation to um, be brave and all the rest of it. But um, in actual fact, uh, Roddy Cannon and I actually did a retranslation of it because there had been a translation done for the museum, but we weren't too enthusiastic about it, and so we redid the translation. But I'm send you a copy. I mean, it's a very attractive, very attractive pipe banner, bigger yeah. than the usual ones, and it's got this quatrain of Gaelic verse. It's even got um, instruments on it. There's a harp in one corner and there's a set of pipes somewhere. Um, oh, cool. But a magnificent banner. And Would I be able to use that as like uh, art for the episode? Or is it got um, weird copy? Can I use that as art for the episode, like the thumbnail? Or has it got weird uh, copyright um, issues? I don't know. I don't, 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 you know. I don't think there should be copyright issues because I certainly we had permission from the museum uh, cool. to to work on it, and uh, uh, it, it's been around. So I'll send you. And that's great. Just yeah. picking it up yeah. these days is probably zero anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I don't think I don't think people are scrubbing podcasts yet looking for copyright images for sure. <laughs> but, well, thank you so much, Keith. I uh, like I said before, I, I just I really uh, I really appreciate the time that you've taken to talk to me here. But every time I get an email from you after an episode, it makes me very happy to see like, OK, here's where I could have gone or here's what I what I should have added or just having another conversation about it is always really fun. So I appreciate it. We discussed the Montgomery Pipers over there, didn't we? I think. Uh, I think so. so I'm not sure. Montgomery to the Pipers they had, along with the story about how, when a group of the Montgomerys were captured by the Indians, they managed to dupe the Indian into uh, just shooting one of them, just managed to 
persuade the Indians to just shoot him rather than torture him to death. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I've talked about that with somebody anyway, that those he was boasting that he was bulletproof, basically, right? Like he said you could resist a bullet. Yeah. And uh, uh, they only realized after he persuaded them to shoot him that he got out of being tortured. Yeah. And they let us go. <laughs> yeah, that's that's some good uh, good thinking on your feet, I guess. But, I mean you you've published in a lot of places. Um is there is there a good place to like that people should go to check out your stuff or just kind of have to scrub through and find it in common stock or find it in uh early harp or um, well, first of all, publishing has never been publishing has never been my main objective. I've always been trying to effectively answer my own questions. Sure. Um, but I was persuaded once they, people saw what I was sitting on here. Um, because again, I I, I I I move fast. I don't bother taking notes. I just order copies. Is um, what came of having a fairly well-paid health service job. Yeah. Um, so I've got a, 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 a big filing problem at home because once I transcribe the copy of the document, I file it. Um, it means you can always go back what to effectively is an original because you're looking at an original scan. But um, I've only really, I suppose, published, well, a bit more than the tip of the iceberg, but there's an awful lot that I haven't simply because uh, it's never been what drives me. Um, mm. With the book on the harp, it was Alison who suggested, having seen my material, that we should do a book. Um, Colmer Boyle, uh, Roddy Cannon, and so on, once they saw what I was sitting on, uh, persuaded me I should publish material, um, which is why anything I do publish, as I said, is um, uh, if you suffer from insomnia, it's the best cure. <laughs> My approach is quite simple. I line up the facts I've got, and, and mostly I, it's lining up facts. I don't try and speculate too much. I just line sure. up the facts. Um, and once I've got them in a line, um, join them up with a few joining words like Anne's button and all the rest of it, <laughs> then boredom sets in. And if it's readable, I publish, which is why anything I publish is a cross between uh, a ship's log from my school days or... Um, a laboratory report from when I first started in the health service or patient's notes from when I sort of finished my time in the health service. <laughs> the information is there, but don't expect it to be literature. <laughs> sure, sure. For the for the heart stuff, um, a lot of it, because I, I find more and more that journals take a hell of a long time to publish things. Yeah. And I submitted an article looking at uh, the pipers and harpers and violas in the Grant estate from the early 17th century to Scottish Gaelic studies. Um, I was warned the year I submitted it that the next Scottish Gaelic studies was unlikely to appear for about a year and a half, which was <laughs> Christmas, Christmas just before COVID. Yeah. Since then, more has moved. But uh, also with increasing age, and so they, I'm not trying to set out to have posthumous publications. Um, mm. So I like um, the, the internet and a lot of stuff relating to the harp and all where the harp overlaps onto the pipes you'll find on the Washington Harp yeah. website. Yeah, I haven't driven. Um, my big uh, big article there on um, uh, mapping the glass harp in Scotland, which is uh, where I looked at every occasion where I could identify a glass before 1650 and put a red spot on the map. 
And what comes across quite clearly is that there are no references before 1650 to the Klossach, uh, physical ones, we don't say it wasn't there, but physical ones up in the northwest in the sky, which is why the bagpipe took off there in a big way. There was no competition. Oh, really? Uh, okay. But, so there's a lot of piping stuff intermixed because if, I, I wear several hats, and so it's reflected in anything I do. Yeah. Um, most of the piping stuff was probably these days still in, well, uh, piping times, uh, piping today, I think a few, and the the latest one was that uh, uh, looking at pipers, lands, holdings, and what they actually held, which was published in the the first edition of the yearly uh, piping oh, yeah. times annual, and of course common stock, which yeah. um, Pete is always nagging me for material. <laughs> yeah. um, he really wants his hand, to get his hands on the my list of his over closing on 300 lowland pipers over the period from 1800 going backwards to the first references to piping. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's and information. So lowland pipers were the majority. If you look at piping in Scotland, they were in the majority. Yeah. Um, oh. And so I just, I want to ask another question, but we really got to wrap up. But I'm, I'm like, so there's a lot of attention paid to these Highland piping schools, right? Like the McCrimmons and the various families that are, are teaching are known for teaching Highland pipers. Is there an equivalent thing in the lowlands? Is there like piping families that are taking on students or? Well, one has to sort of requalify, I suppose, the, the so-called Highland piping schools. We, we know that some of the principal leading pipers taught, but the concept, um, again, we're starting to move into that sort of romantic part. The right. concept of um, them having lots of pupils is, it may be mythical. I mean, we know that uh, the son of Donald Roy McIntyre was sent to, first of all, Condooley Rankin on Mull in 1697 for yeah. tuition. And then he was to go on to McCrimmon uh, on Sky. But I mean, that's one man. And we know too, that he was back within two years. So um, between two piping instructors and over two years, that was the length of the tuition. Uh, the next one we could jump to is, yes, um, uh, the Fraser Piper, um, David Fraser, who was sent to McCrimmon for instruction. And that was where we have the piping indenture. Um, but again, that's one man to McCrimmon. Yeah. We also know that um, the Grants, uh, the Cummings family, um, in the 1745, Grant raised two independent companies for the government side, and there was a piper to each. The piper in one company was the now aging son of the piper in the portrait, John, uh, John Cumming. Yeah. His son um, was piper to one company. The piper to the other company was a young uh, Cumming, Angus Cumming. But he seems to have uh, the, the family played both pipes and violins, and he seems to have given up the pipes not long after Culloden and specialised on the violin. Mm. And in fact, in 1780, he published the collection, the youngest coming collection of fiddle music. Mm. Um, he actually died the month he published it in um, 1780. Um, his son, in about 1774, 72, 74, uh, Grant of Grant had decided again, apparently, that he actually needed a piper. Um, 
clearly Angus wasn't by that stage in a condition, in a position to actually teach piping, presumably having stuck to the fiddle. So we know that his son, John Cumming, was sent up to Donald MacArthur in Skye, 1772, for instruction. And we know that he was there for a couple of years and how much that cost because the, the accounts were all in the grant papers. Okay. But again, we are looking at a situation where it is one person being taught by a well-known piper. Right. As far as the lowlands, it gets rather confusing because the piper's name was McLean, which suggests highlands. He was at one stage the town piper of Rothsey. Uh, on the island of Rothsey. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, not lowlands. No, lowlands. You're down in the mouth of Clyde? Okay. Oh, okay, sure. And, and he engaged to uh, uh, an indenture, well, no, it was actually a, a, a um, agreement, legal agreement, which was copied into the books of council and session, which is where I found it. The original doesn't exist, but people had things copied as they wanted to preserve them. They had them copied into the books of council and session, modern yeah. versions, the register of deeds. And it would be a copy of the original document, which was there in one of the law law's offices forever. And we know that um, this Piper McLean, who would have been a lowland Piper, Borough Piper, um, took on training a Piper to um, Campbell of Glendarrell. Um, uh, McLean then moved to become Borough Piper of Glasgow. Hmm. So there was a second rewrite of the uh, the agreement that he would continue training this young lad while he's now in Glasgow. All right. The training certainly occurred, as I said, the training certainly occurred in the lowlands. The um, the man himself was certainly uh, what we call a lowland borough piper, but his name was McLean, and he's probably connected to the famous dancing master, William McLean. Um, but the, 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 I'll send you the, I'll send you the article. It's, it's in common stock somewhere, I think. Okay. Um, uh, but again, you're looking at one person being trained by one piper. I don't know of any evidence whatever of the idea of um, a master piper sitting there with, as you would get in the, the military situation, if you look at right. pictures of, uh, of Ross and company where the, the, the regiment of pipers are sitting there with the chanters resting on the table and the blackboards up there. Right. Um, I don't know of any evidence whatever that there was ever a sort of a, a school in that sort of sense where you had more than one pupil at a time. Right. I mean, the chances are there wouldn't have been the bagpipes around for that. Um, the idea that everybody had pipes is a fairly modern Concept, thing. Yeah. Most piping families would have had one set of pipes. Sure. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Everybody so, had bagpipes, uh, Keith. I don't know, man. I think everybody had them that one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, uh, the same set of pipes would have been used throughout the family yeah that's wild it's just yeah it's hard I have to go back to my childhood self that desperately wanted bagpipes and could never dream of affording them and think of like that's actually probably the the normal state of things is to for them to seem impossible People joined the boys in Scotland. People joined the boys' brigades because they had a pipe band and they would get their hands on pipes. People joined the army because they could get their hands on pipes. Yeah. Um, if you were, uh, uh, well, you're thinking back to the level of affluence or not affluence in my youth, um, 
people didn't have the wherewithal to buy pipes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I once did a calculation, mostly dating, uh, taking uh, some evidence for costs from uh, just after uh, the 45, when people were putting in claims around Nimvalaki for damage by the soldiers on the tenants. And um, the claims all tended to break down into the value of the house that had been burned down, uh, the value of the contents, and the family possession, which was a cow. Yeah. And most of them, the whole thing wrapped up in the price of about five pounds. Sure. Now, that time, we know a set of pipes would have been around about five pounds. Yeah. And to a Peabrough Society audience, I pose the question, if to have your set of pipes represented the cost of your house, the whole contents, and a year's income, which is what the cow represents because the calf could be sold and the milk could be sold, if it represented the price of your house or the value of your house, value of the contents, and the value of a year's income, how many would you have you have a set of pipes, put your hands up, not yeah. a single hand went up. Yeah, yeah. And that's the reality if you're looking backwards. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's a helpful thing to keep uh, to keep in mind. Okay. Well, thank you. I got to wrap it up and, and go <laughs> start editing this together. I think I'm probably going to wind up keeping the whole thing in because there's a lot of, this is exactly what I hoped for, which was a lot of uh, kind of digressions and, and thinking about other things and, and connecting in. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks again, Keith. Uh, as always, the show notes will be filled with links to things that we talked about. There won't be links to everything we talked about, but Keith was kind enough to send me a couple uh, of the more pressing articles that we talked about, as well as the cover art, which is that uh, pipe banner. Uh, if you have any interest in the tunes that I'm playing too, as always, there's links to the collection from Coming, the collection of Strasbourg Old Highland Reels. Right now, we are listening to Harry Innes's reel, and at the beginning, we heard Arndilly's reel. But you can follow those links in the show notes. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash waytootwag. We've got over 10 episodes there now, so lots of stuff to tide you over until our next episode. Still keeping close to that every other week schedule, but I am going to release a little mini episode on Valentine's Day of kind of Valentine's Day themed tunes. Anyway, cheers and see you then.